This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant Podcast and blog wonders what good farming looks like and aims to help farmers and gardeners share insights with each other. At theruminant.ca, you'll find show notes for each episode of the podcast, as well as the odd essay, book review, and photo-based blog post. You can email me, editor at theruminant.ca, I'm at ruminantblog on Twitter, or search The Ruminant on Facebook. Okay, on with the show. Hey folks, it's Jordan. Okay, so last week's episode was a longer conversation focused on ideas and politics, which means that this week I zoom in with some short conversations on the practical aspects of farming. This time, I've got three voices lined up for you to hear. First, I speak with Blake Hall of Prairie Gold Meats in Red Deer, Alberta. Blake is a pastured livestock guy who has had some success with his winter round bale grazing program, and he joined me to talk about it. After that, you'll hear from Suresh Gimari, a PhD candidate at Washington State University, who joined me to talk about his research on biodegradable plastic mulches for ground crops. Finally, market gardener Matt Coffey of Second Spring Market Garden in North Carolina joins me to talk about how he improved the very poor soil he started out with on his first lease. All right, so first up, this guy. Uh, my name's Blake Hall. My wife and I run Prairie Gold Pastured Meats. Uh, we're on uh, rented land at Tamara Ranch, just south of Red Deer in Alberta. We direct market grass-finished beef, pastured pork, and lamb and sell eggs into Red Deer in Calgary. Blake Hall, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. My pleasure. Blake, I'm really excited that you agreed to come on the show and perhaps come back again, but um, tonight I just want to talk to you about winter bale grazing. That sounds awesome. Ba- Jordan, bale grazing is the best. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I can go into the many phases of faces of why it's the best okay so you are a dedicated pastured livestock guy but you live in uh, alberta and a lot of the winter i'm assuming at the very least you the vegetation in your fields is dormant but at a lot of the time you have snow so i assume that's why you're doing bale grazing in the winter am i correct yeah that's right Uh, not too far east of red deer when it first got settled they thought it might be the next great rangeland like texas or kansas and maybe nine years out of ten, that's true, because we're in the rain shadow of the Rocky Mountains, so the, we don't get all that much moisture. And the native grasses would basically freeze dry come winter. And so the nutrition stays relatively high, especially in the native species. That's how the bison were able to thrive for so long. Uh, so maybe nine years out of ten you can get away with it, but then that one year out of ten where you get a snow cover... Uh, <laughs> It, they'd lose, you know, the settlers would lose a great portion of their stock. And uh, so, yeah, we rely on winter feed as insurance to get through. We stockpile quite a bit of grass so we can graze through the shoulder seasons. We also plant some different cocktail mixes so we can extend our grazing season, but uh, I, we're not willing to uh, go hay free in this climate just yet. Okay, so, but is that to suggest that you're only doing bale grazing in a major way, only once every few years, or do you find you're just doing it every year at points during the winter? Sorry. Yeah, I, we do it every year. That's just to say that we don't want this each winter to be the one year out of 10. And so as a result, we always buy in winter feed. And because it, you know, realistically, it's not going to keep all that well past 
one or two years, so we opt to feed it out, partly because bale grazing is such an awesome soil builder and fertility booster that we can help remediate uh, poor spots of the farm or improve our best spots through bale grazing. Let's talk about orientation of the bale. Like you can either place the bale down on the side of the bale as if you were going to roll the bale. So these are big round bales, um, yeah. but, or you can place it so that it's on kind of its end so that you wouldn't be rolling it. Cause it's essentially on its edge, which way is better. Yeah. It's tempting to put it on its edge so that you can cut the strings off. And, uh, as you go through the winter, so that if you do have any carryover, then your bale still have the strings on them and you can move them around after but we opt to put them on their round side, the way they come out of the baler, and cut all the strings in the fall. And the reason for that is they just weather way better and having their core exposed to the elements. And what I found is that if it's on its edge, the cattle have, or the sheep have a really easy time tromping the outer layers of the bale down and they end up stepping on it, fouling a lot more of the hay. So by putting on its round side, uh, the cattle will have to work a little bit harder to get into the bale, and they don't spoil as much. Right. Okay. So that makes sense. And while we're on the topic, uh, later in your webinar, you talked briefly about how you actually place the bales uh, to provide a bit of shelter uh, for your animals. Can you just talk about bale placement in general? Yeah, sure. So basically, we in the fall, uh, we... We make about 30% of our own hay and then we buy in the rest. So once we start buying in our feed, rather than stacking it in a hay yard, we just have it delivered right into the field. And it takes me a day or two on the tractor to get it placed in a huge grid pattern. And I'd say the bale placing is probably 10 meters in all directions around each bale. And that gives enough room for the cattle to kind of be butt to butt between one bale and the next so they're not bumping into each other bumping into the electric fence mm -hmm. uh, and the bales aren't spaced so far that you're getting really patchy distribution of nutrients uh, and then we're a little bit strategic in how we so then we use an electric fence to ration how the bales to the cattle so i'll set up a fence they'll get one row of bales in the grid and i'll make the grid such that one row will last them about a week um, and typically depends on what your setup is like how you're positioned with wind breaks and whatnot wind is our main enemy in the cold weather here the cattle can handle uh, pretty cold temperatures but as long as they've got a wind break they'll do just fine without a you know a full enclosure or a barn to go into uh, and so what, we'll, what we've done in the past, if we've got them in an open field, is we'll have our bales set out in a grid pattern and we'll graze from south to north so that when there's bad weather that comes in, uh, the cattle have the whole bale grazing patch to act as a buffer. And it's pretty amazing. You'll go out in a blizzard and the, the little calves will be, like we don't, we keep the calves with their mums through the winter and those calves will be nestled in uh, completely out of the, out of the wind and sitting in the bale and they're just totally comfortable so it's been a real win for us so i guess a takeaway point given that people in different areas are going to have different prevailing winds is to perhaps be thoughtful about 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 the placement so that you maximize the chance that the livestock can benefit from a windbreak yeah absolutely or you know you can consider putting portable windbreaks out or yeah it's worth being mindful in your bale placement what 
you know, what your winter weather is going to look like and how that's going to affect uh, your strategy. Okay, so now let's move on to uh, straw mulch because you made some comments that I heard you talk about in terms of um, you've started to introduce, I think you're laying down straw mulch underneath the bales or you've just got bales of straw out there. Can you explain what you're doing with straw and why you were doing it? Yeah, well, I've got both. I, last, I started putting out straw bales with the hay. So if I had, let's say, a dozen bales in one week's worth of feed, I would maybe add one more bale of straw Straw in our region is plentiful and it's cheap. It's a great source of carbon. It's a great source of bedding. So I put it out there um, so the cattle can bed down in it. And so they've got a little extra to chew on. When it gets really cold, the cattle crave a higher fiber because it really fires up their rumen and actually creates quite a bit of heat. So you'll notice when it gets below minus 20, they'll start eating quite a bit more and they'll especially go after the straw. So I put that bale out, and that was a win. But I got an idea from my friend Peter Lundgaard in the Peace Country um, this year, because he's an avid composter. And so after, he's also a bale grazer. And after bale grazing, in the spring, he'll push up all the residue and compost it. And so what he's done, because he's in a region similar to us in terms of rainfall, uh, it's fairly dry. And so water can be a limiting factor in a composting program. And so he started rolling out straw bales first and then placing his hay bales for the bale grazing on top of the straw. So that way he's able to leverage all the precipitation that falls as snow in the winter. When it thaws in the spring, it just soaks into that straw and it provides the needed moisture to start the compost pile. So we've started doing that. Uh, and it's been a, a win on many fronts, uh, partly for the reasons I just mentioned, but also like it keeps the hay up off the ground, so we have very little spoilage that way. And what I'm finding is, you know, typically the cattle will graze their bale down to the ground, but there's always a little bit of residue left behind, uh, and that's unavoidable, and that we factor in when we budget for how much feed we're going to need. But what I'm finding now that I'm putting straw underneath is because there's about a foot of mulch under, the cattle eat the hay down into the straw and there's almost like almost 100% consumption of the hay, which is a huge saving for us. And not to mention that there's just that much more bedding for the cattle to lay down in. Uh, and that bedding is, is huge in terms of animal performance through the winter. And I'm really excited to see what happens this spring with an even layer of straw and manure over this whole bale grazing patch. Well, that was another thing you mentioned is that, you know, when you're going to, when you're going to bale graze, um, a heavy load of manure in a more concentrated area kind of is inevitable. But so you were thinking that the straw would also just add more carbon to better, to balance out the, the heavy manure load in, in terms of eventual, I guess, composting on site. Exactly right. Yeah, this, uh, this is where the soil building potential of bale grazing really starts to shine. It's just really fun to go around in the season following bale grazing two and three years later and digging holes and doing earthworm counts and doing yield tests, and it's really validating. The main detractors of bale grazing say, you know, why do you do that? You're so lazy. Oh, you're wasting so much feed. But the fertility boost you get from each bale is huge and 
then that's, that brings up a whole other side. I don't know if we have time to get into it, but the labor saving side, like I, I do about 30 minutes of labor per week through the winter compared to my neighbor who fires up the tractor every morning and hooks onto the silage wagon and spends an hour mixing silage and grain and feeding it out in his feedlot. You know, not to, not to knock that style of production, but that's at least a half his day just to feed cattle. Whereas, you know, I can either do my business planning for the year ahead or focus on marketing and processing or take an off-farm job and, you know, work 40 hours a week and make that extra money in the winter when things are slow on the farm. Or hell, even give your give a few minutes of time to uh, to a podcast with listeners who really appreciate hearing what you have to say. <laughs> yeah, or, or develop my own podcasting habit and take in <laughs> awesome content like that found in the ruminant. <laughs> what a guy, what a guy. Okay, <laughs> okay so let's. Uh, I, we're almost done. I just want to move to the spring now and talk a little bit about the benefits of, of this system. I guess um, let's start with, I don't know. You mentioned pigs as well, so you you've actually placed pigs in in the uh, in the spring. You've placed pigs where the where the bale grazing was for the for the cattle. And what did you? How did that work out? Yeah, that's right. Well, last year was our first year putting the straw out with the hay, and in the spring, I was a little daunted by how much residual matter was left. Like there was a lot of straw left over, and so we turned our pigs out into the bale grazing patch just to let them root through and find any. Uh, you know, spoiled hay that was left over to root through the manure, to root through the straw and find any sour grain kernels that might be left. Um, so that was great. They turned everything over. They rooted it up uh, without breaking the um, crown of the perennial pasture that was underneath the pails, like when we first placed them. Mm-hmm. We placed them in our pasture rotation. So that was the key with the pigs was not to leave them there long enough that they started to root into the actual soil, but just to get them to root up the residual material from the bale grazing. So I had them in there for about two weeks. Of course, that's relative to how much bale grazing you've got out there, how many pigs you've got, etc. Mm-hmm. Then I came in with a no-till seed drill and sowed in a cocktail mix that was really high in brassicas. And this was something that Gabe Brown suggested from North Dakota. He did a speaking tour through here, and that's where this, uh, the idea was, well, for me, was born anyway. I think this is something he's been doing for a while. Where you sow a cocktail mix in high in brassicas because brassicas are heavy feeders, and so they need quite a bit of nitrogen but they also need the balanced carbon to nitrogen ratio. And so as a result, they digest a huge amount of litter. And I thought, okay, I've got all this straw here, all this hay residue. Uh, This might be the ticket for dealing with it. And it was just great. Like we had a bit of a drought this spring. Germination wasn't fantastic, but where the bales were, that thatch kept the soil moisture high enough to allow for germination. And we had 100% ground cover, which if you're bale grazing, and you'll find that come spring, if you're not putting anything in, you typically won't have 100% ground cover because of that thatch layer. It'll choke out the grass for the next season. Anyway, so these annuals came up, and out like we had no weed pressure as a result. 100% ground cover, and... Those brassicas keep their feed value after freeze-up, so we used it as fall grazing, and we grazed it down to the ground. 
it was just amazing. All that straw had been digested, and underneath it just looked like the rest of the ranch, just a perennial stand of grasses and and uh, legumes that was, were coming up. It was just really a win. So I'm very excited to see what how the yield compares next year uh, from where we had bale grazed two years prior to where we have never bale grazed. And um, last uh, last question, I guess, uh, Blake, I have to assume you're not producing the grain that produced the straw. You're bringing the straw in. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I, I guess, you know, I guess, I mean, I would assume that a lot of places where people are doing pastured livestock, there's probably a decent supply of straw nearby. But but all of this, all of these tips, kind of kind of necessitate that you need uh, affordable access to to straw to to make this work. Yeah, undoubtedly, it's like uh, like anything. You've got to build a system that works in your climate with your rural farm economy and as it happens where we are is a very big grain producing area so everybody and their dog has all the grain farming equipment and so straw is plentiful and it's cheap and it's fairly easy to find non-desiccated straw uh, and to have it delivered and everything and so maybe if you're farming on salt spring island (laughs) straw in your bale grazing (laughs) program might not be a a great addition but maybe there's something else right Yeah. yeah, so that this is the system that works for us. I, I would think it would work across the prairies. I've got friends that have tried bale grazing in eastern Ontario, and it was a disaster because the freeze-thaw cycle is so much stronger there where they'll have a big thaw and their bales will thaw out and all the snow will thaw and melt and then freeze back up and you've got these big green ice cubes sitting in your field that the cattle can't get into anymore. I mean, that's a that's a pretty tough situation to find yourself in so mm-hmm. i you know i i don't know that it's prescriptive everywhere but certainly it's been a success for us well blake hall uh i'm hoping that this is the start of a wonderful podcast relationship between the two of us and i, I really appreciate you coming on the show today jordan i really appreciate the opportunity and the feeling is mutual I am Suresh Kimire. I am a PhD student at Washington State University. I am working on biodegradable plastic molds with Dr. Carol Miles uh, at Northwest uh, Western Research and Extension Center, uh, Washington. Suresh, thank you very much for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. Thank you. Suresh, you are studying uh, uh, the, the use of biodegradable mulches for horticultural purposes and i'm wondering if we could start by talking about um why you're studying that like maybe we could talk a bit about the use of those mulches in the industry and some of the problems that that i guess have existed that led to you doing this research uh sure uh first of all uh, the use of uh, mulches uh, generally uh, polythene mulches in agriculture has greatly increased in the last two decades uh, throughout the world, not only in the U.S., uh, because farmers use mulch to reduce uh, weed pressure, moderate soil temperature, conserve soil moisture, and which result into the higher crop yield. However, a disposal of used uh, polythene mulch causes pollution and has created the uh, threat to soil and environment. So there is a need to 
develop an alternative that can function as a polythene mold at the same time biodegrades into the soil after uses and uh, will not be a problem to soil health and ecology. So we are working on to identify potentially uh, potential biodegradable mulches that can function as uh, that can function as PE and at the same time biodegrade into the soil without leaving any harmful uh, effect. It, you tell me if I'm wrong, but the first generation of biodegradable mulches have proven to be a problem because they're not fully uh, breaking down properly in the soil. Is that right? During the late 1980s, uh, they were came into market, but they were not totally biodegradable, which uh, created more problems to the farmer. They thought the mulch would biodegrade into the field and they wouldn't need to remove and dispose. But at that time, it didn't biodegrade very good and um, created the problem because you can't easily pull or remove the mulches if it's partially degraded. It's uh, worsen the situation. So at first it didn't biodegrade and there has been uh, much of research done to develop uh, biodegradable mulches that can actually biodegrade into the soil. So uh, as you said, at first it was not fully biodegradable. Instead it was oxodegradable uh, which means in the presence of oxygen, uh, it biodegraded. But when you till into the soil, there would be less availability of oxygen and the process uh, is reduced and then the biodegradation cannot occur quickly. Right, right. And I mean, it, I know it was a bad enough problem that up here in Canada, Suresh, the, the, the Canadian Organic uh, overseers in Canada, the Canadian Organic Regime, it's called, recently banned the use of biodegradable mulches uh, because yes, of the discovery yeah. that they were they were not fully biodegrading in soil. So that's that's yeah. it sounds it sounds like your your research is coming along at a very good time uh, as part mm -hmm. of the effort to develop what I guess we could call you know the next generation of of biodegradable mulches. Could you can you tell yeah. me a little bit about your research? What are what are you doing? So now here at uh, Washington State University uh, Research and Extension Center, we are testing four biodegradable mulches uh, that are currently available in the market. So we are testing, we are evaluating those mulches in terms of uh, pumpkin fruit yield and quality uh, and biodegradation of those mulches over time. And this experiment will be repeated for four years. We will lay down the mulch each year, till into the soil for each year, and then we will see if there is any accumulation over time. And the accumulation, does the accumulation affect the crop yield and quality? And these are the main focus of our research. And are, what are, do you, I mean, I imagine you're using some sort of a control. Are you using traditional non-biodegradable plastic mulch in your trial as well? In, you know, in, yeah. ter in terms of measuring yield and quality against, you know, the traditional non-biodegradable mulch? 
yeah to for the comparison we have two kind of control one is regular uh, polythene black polythene molds and other one is fully biodegradable paper molds so we can so that we can compare our result with those two controls so okay i want to ask you to explain let's forget about the certified organic farmer for a moment let's just let's just think about someone who uses organic practices is not certified and is currently using biodegradable plastic mulches or so-called biodegradable plastic mulches mm -hmm. if they're using a mulch that is not fully breaking down in the soil what's wrong with that like what's happening in the soil that that could be problematic you know for the soil or for our food or anything are there negative consequences when this stuff doesn't break down properly so if it's partially breaking down uh farmer just uh, can't till it down because it will hamper the soil quality it will hamper the root growth because uh, penetrating through the plastic would be difficult for plants roots so the other thing, if you apply chemical pesticides to the soil, to the crop, uh, those leftover fragments could be a potential, potential source to capture those chemicals and can be really hazardous. And then they can be taken to the uh, rivers, ocean, and can be hazardous to the animals, birds. So... Uh, it's not ecologically sound. And when we talk about the productivity, if you apply the mulch that doesn't break down uh, well, there, will, there would be accumulation over time. If you apply for more and more years, there would be accumulation. So the soil quality will be degraded. And eventually the productivity of the soil will be reduced. Will decline, okay, interesting. Suresh, what is an acceptable, have you defined or has anyone else defined an acceptable level of um, decomposition uh, with these mulches? Uh, <clears throat> to be considered biodegradable as per the rule, it should reach at least 90% degradation in the soil within two years or less, uh, according to the international standard. Uh, but in our experiment, uh, it's I I'm just only I just completed the first year of experiment and my results showed that some of the mulches degraded um, quickly. Uh, I don't have the full year data because I just took the data immediately after the till down into the soil. So I just have the baseline data. Um, uh, very soon uh, at the end of this month or the beginning of the next month, I'm going to the field and taking those soil samples to see how much the mulch is degrading. So I'll know after a few weeks that how, how, is, how are those mulch performing in the soil. And so what is your hope for your results? Because you mentioned you're actually testing uh, mulches that are on the market, like brand name mulches. If you find that that a certain brand is is it performs very very well, like to an acceptable standard, um, mm -hmm. what is the what is the result? Is it is it just that we simply 
your your research advocates purchasing that brand or are there broader implications like essentially it becomes an endorsement of whatever process that that company is using to make their mulch so we are working with uh, a different group of scientists which also include the chemical engineers and um, i think our result would be more like uh, if um, if any mold contains this particular ingredient, a uh, combination of these uh, resources, like um, we call it feed stocks, they can biodegrade quickly, quicker than the rest. So we will find that the combination of different kind of polymer will lead into uh, quicker degradation. So it not only will help a particular manufacturer, but also will help all to design a new uh, polymer that can biodegrade into the soil and that ultimately can be used in organic crop production in the U.S. or anywhere else. So our approach will be to help not only a particular manufacturer, but also to design a new polymer that can biodegrade. What would you recommend to farmers today who want to use mulch, plastic mulch, but do not want to use it? They, they don't want to use biodegradable mulch if, if they can't be sure that it will break down properly. Is your advice to avoid using biodegradable mulches at, at the moment? Or are, is there a brand out there that you can recommend right now? Mm, right now, until our research is done, I can't recommend any, I cannot recommend any kind of mulches. Uh, though we see some of the mulches are performing, we think performing better than others. So at this point, I cannot tell anything about the performance of those mulches. So provided you remove all the black plastic from the field, you can use it in organic production. So you can use the regular black plastic molds. Uh, and then remove, and it will be your. It, it still will be organic. So, for now, uh, I cannot tell much about this. So, this, how can people follow up on your research? I mean, is there something they can be looking at now or or down the line? Where where will they find information about your results? So, I think after a month, uh, I will have uh, one more data series. So. I will know that which mold is uh, performing better in terms of biodegradation in, in the soil. So we can talk a little bit about these things after a month, I guess. Well, I'm going to try your uh, your full name one more time. Suresh Gimire, thank you so much for sharing your research with us on the Ruminant Podcast. Thank you for calling in here. And thank you for giving me opportunity to share my work. I'm Matt Coffey. I'm the owner of Second Spring Market Garden in Asheville, North Carolina. It's an acre and a half diversified vegetable farm, and we do a lot of four-season production and run a four-season CSA. Matt Coffey, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
So Matt, for this conversation, we're going to talk about uh, soil fertility and uh, general soil health and, and what you and I have been doing to, to I guess, improve or fix our soil uh, year over year. And I previously spoke to you and you mentioned that when you got to the farm that you're currently on, you had a pretty challenging soil fertility situation. Can you, can you expand on that? Yes. We're, we're, we're like our, our first uh, growing site. Uh, the, the first place that we ever started growing full-time when we showed up, um, we were dealing with probably the worst soil I've ever seen. So, so what, had, what had been done was uh, the, the owner uh, of this land that we were renting had decided that they wanted to uh, flatten the property out uh, to rent it to a farmer. So they hired some construction graders, like a grading crew, um, and these guys just scraped the topsoil off of the property. So when we got there, we were dealing with, uh, with yeah, it's pretty absurd. So when we got there, we were dealing with this uh, heavy heavy clay, like almost subsoil kind of substrate material. Um, and uh, and we had to figure out a way to uh, to do this intensive, you know, 30-inch bed market garden type production in that soil. So we definitely had our work cut out for us. So you, you basically got there and the landlord said, I got good news for you. We fixed, we fixed the farm for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. That's pretty much how it went. Oh. Um, Can you give me a summary of, uh, of how you approached the tackle this, this challenge? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so what we did was we, we went ahead and, uh, uh, dealing with this really heavy soil, we had somebody come in with a tractor and, uh, chisel plow it and disc it for us. Um, so that it would be a little bit more uh, malleable with the BCS. Um, and then we, we basically went ahead and BCS uh, tilled uh, our entire growing area so that it would be easier to shape our beds. Um, and we shaped our beds with a rotary plow. And once we had these 30-inch beds of this basically like heavy clay, um, we ended up wheelbarrowing uh, compost directly into the beds. And so... Um, we we made a very deliberate decision there where we said, okay, we want to add a lot of organic matter to try to um, prevent the compaction that's going to start happening with the clay when it settles. Um, but we want to be selective about what types of organic matter we're adding. So we, so we added a large amount of uh, leaf compost because we don't have access to something like peat moss down here in the southeast. Um, so we added about two and a half to three inches of leaf compost to all the beds and filled that in deep um, to try to incorporate it, you know, particle by particle with, with the clay. And then we went back with a very high-quality compost that, that we had tested to, you know, ensure what sort of nutrients we were adding to the soil. And we added a, about an inch and a half of a really nice uh, compost to the surface and harrowed that into the beds. Um, so we were trying to fix the, the structure as well as, as any, you know, uh, nutrient deficiencies that, that we had at the time. So Matt, I'll, I'll, at this point, I'll ask you, like, um, did you, did you end up when you consider that you first started with kind of a bulking compost and then a more nutrient dense compost, did you spend a lot of money in the end? And were you, were you, did you find that stressful or, or were you able to get this stuff for cheap? And, and how did you feel about what you spent? Well, you know, where we are in North Carolina, we're, we're kind of, you know, thing, things can be a little challenging in the southeast. So we don't have, like, a municipal composting companies and that sort of stuff here. So we, we had to look pretty hard to find something in our area that was affordable but also that we felt good about 
uh, in terms of, of what was in it and what the analysis looked like on it. So um, we did end up spending, I think our first year, we spent about $4,000, something like that, on compost for an acre and a half. But when you're talking about, you know, grossing over $100,000 an acre, it's it's okay to make that kind of initial input onto a site, I, I think. So so well, we that, felt good about it when we were doing it, and, and, it, and it, it definitely worked for us. So. Well, that, that's kind of why I was asking, Matt. I think having now five years into my own market garden business, I was a lot more gun-shy on those kinds of expenses at first, but I don't – I've since spent quite a bit more, you know, I've, I've bumped up my yearly – uh, budget for various kinds of amendments significantly and i haven't regretted mm-hmm. it at all i just think it's so important to to always be trying to to improve your soil in in what with whatever options you have yeah and i, and I will say that I, I completely agree and i will say that for us at the time we knew that we had a limited lease on that property and so we were trying to balance uh, making enough changes to the soil to where it would it would produce for us the way that, that we needed it to. Um, we were trying to balance that with not just pouring an endless amount of money into soil that didn't belong to us. So, mm-hmm. um, I but I but I really strongly feel that once you're on property that you actually own, that no amount of money spent on your soil structure and soil quality is, is ever wasted. I mean, you just can't. It's it's one of my favorite things to spend money on. Honestly, <laughs> I always feel good about it because it's like it it's the one thing that that you can never do too much work to improve. I think. So. Yeah. Right. No. That's I I I feel the same way. Okay. So well, I I want to just now just kind of sort of just jump to a different part of soil maintenance. I'm wondering. So you've been on this you you've been on this land for a few years. It sounds like. What did your annual maintenance plan look like? And 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 can you can you start by saying do you take annual or or do you take regular soil tests? Um, yeah, we do, and it's it's kind of it's kind of a a little discouraging to see how small your you know your improvement in organic matter can be when you're when you're starting with something really awful um, in terms of soil quality. I mean, but. Uh, but yeah, we do do annual soil tests, and um, the the one nice thing about clay, I guess, is that uh, it's fairly nutrient rich. Um, it's you know, especially where we are here in the southeast, it's pretty rare to have something like a you know boron or molybdenum deficiency or something random like that, because all of these minerals and things are are generally there in the clay. Um, but so our our annual maintenance. Uh, is pretty simple. We're, we we weren't deficient in any one thing in particular um, that we really have to worry about with the vegetables that we grow. So we do um, we do a spring uh, amendment of an inch of compost on basically all of our beds, um, and then uh, in the spring we add some um, chicken manure from uh, from organically fed laying hens um and uh we we do that uh in different quantities depending on what's going into the bed and then we we end up generally double or triple cropping all of our beds because we do this four season csa so when we when we whenever we do a succession planting we do um our you know in maybe summer or in the fall we'll do another uh, half an inch of compost on all the beds so so we managed to turn something that that started out uh, pr- 
pretty awful and into something that was really workable for us, you know, by, by slowly reincorporating organic matter. Okay, well, I'm curious to know your opinion. I'll, I'll share mine too. Like, I just, I was asking about soil tests because I get a sense that there's probably a good number of our colleagues who don't take soil tests very frequently, if at all. And, and I personally found it to be um, super important. And especially I don't have clay soil and I have a few deficiencies that it's really important I find to take to take to keep track of anyway I'm an advocate for annual soil tests they're so cheap and I don't understand why don't more people don't do it I'm wondering you already said that 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 the money you spend on soil is money well spent what about soil tests do you think it's really crucial or or would you disagree with me a little bit I I do um I do think it's important because it forces you to think in a very particular way about what you're doing with your soil so so for me, when I'm out in the field and, you know, I'm working, like the people that work with us, where, you know, we're out there and we're wheelbarrowing compost or we're raking a bed smooth or whatever, you know, prepping a bed to plant into, um, the whole thing is very intangible, right? Like you're just, you're adding the stuff that you know is good to your soil and you know that it's going to make it better so that, you know, your plants will be healthy and whatever else. But but all of that is a little too, um, it's all a little too vague for me to really feel content with, I guess. So, so having something like some sort of baseline or frame of reference for what's, for what's happening, um, is, is for me really important to actually be able to track, you know, from year to year, an increase in organic matter, just for example, um, it just reminds you that, that what you're doing is important and it gives you a sense of what's really happening uh, with your soil. And uh, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine not doing it honestly, because like you say, it's so cheap and it's really, it's, it's easy. And um, yeah, I just can't, I can't imagine not doing it. Yeah. I, I, I agree that even, even the, 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 just the percent organic matter alone metric is so important. And if you're like me and you have like a number of deficiencies, it's important to be seeing those. And then, and then your cation exchange capacity, which is related largely to percent organic matter is so crucial. Um, and I've, I have really, I've really found it's helped me. Um, well, listen, Matt Coffey, this was the first time you've been on. I'm really grateful you came on to talk a bit with me. Uh, thanks so much for joining me on the Ruminant podcast. Today yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here. All right, so that's it, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Oh man, it was a it was a long day today, and it's late right now. I can't wait to to hit the sack. Um, I had to start off my day by driving into town to prove to the police that I'm not a sex offender. Um, I'm not a sex offender, but uh, I recently uh, applied to volunteer with uh, a classroom program that teaches kids about food and agriculture and cooking and stuff. And I had to fill out a criminal record check. And it turns out there's another guy in Canada who once committed sexual offenses who then stopped reporting his place of residency as he was supposed to. And it turns out we share the same birth date. So I had to go and give my fingerprints to prove that uh, I'm not him. Uh, But the good news is I'm not a sex offender. And uh, I think I will find out, or they will find out in a couple days, that that's the case. And I can proceed with uh, some pretty cool volunteer work with some kids. And then I did some deer fencing and potted on some peppers and a whole bunch of other good stuff. All right, that's it. You don't want to hear me. You'd rather hear Vanessa singing the outro song. So I will leave it to her, and I will talk to you next week. Have a good one.
Because why would we live in a place that don't want us? A place that is trying to bleed us dry. We could be happy with life in the country. With salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands. I've been doing a lot of thinking, some real soul searching. And here's my final resolve. I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and braces We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces And live next door to the birds and the bees And live life like it was meant to be If anything, I commit sexual flatteries, okay? I, I, honestly. <laughs>